Another story that I hear about oftentimes is a, a teaching series called the Love Series. Can you, Paul, can you tell me what the, the central thesis of that series was? Defining moment for the church, I think. It was supposed to be, what, a three or four week series maybe on love? Yeah, yeah. It turned into eight months. Um, and I think what happened is God landed on Greg about what the nature of agape love really is. And he just had to keep preaching it. And uh, so central thesis is that God really is this radical, other-oriented love, and that that's what he's trying to shape us as a people into, is that, that same kind of way of being in the world, of, of other-orientedness. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it was, it was profound. Mm -hmm. Greg, what, what was it about it that just made it keep expanding for you? Love is the beginning, middle, and end of everything God's about, everything the kingdom's about, everything we're called to be. Um, and it, it's, it's the all or nothing. Uh, you, you know, Paul says that you can have all the gifts in the world, move mountains, you know, speaking tongues and all that. But if, if you don't have love, it's all together worthless. So this is the criteria. Are, are you living out this love? Living love is Christ loved us and gives life for us. And I, I came to see that the love that defines God and the love that's to define us uh, is, is revealed in Calvary. It's always self-sacrificial love. And when you, when you get that and you get how central that is um, and how it's, it's everything, you begin to realize we are tremendously distracted. <laughs> what, what was Greg's typical attire during a sermon in those days? Uh, I think that was back, there was an early photograph of you with just your socks on. So that must have been you when you started going shoeless. Um, jeans, mismatched t-shirt, um, a stain usually on yeah. the <laughs> So basically what we get these Absolutely. days, right? Okay. Yeah. He shifted. Okay. He was on a kick with turtlenecks for a while. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> hey, Janice, was the church still rapidly growing during this period? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the theme back then was always Sunday is coming. That's all I kept concentrating on was Sunday is coming, mm. which was understandable because Sunday was coming and it meant more people were coming and dealing with just more people and what to do with them, how to handle them, mm. um, which then overwhelms you and keeps focusing you just on Sunday and uh, trying to get people to concentrate on other things besides Sunday was tough. Mm -hmm. How did the love series, the teaching content and the kind of things that were happening around the church, how did those challenge or grow you personally during mm -hmm. that time? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really helped, I think, land this on people is Greg got very specific about the kinds of people we tend to love and the kinds of people we tend not to love as Christians in our culture. And uh, it was super, like, personally challenging because it was like he was just naming the biases against certain people that I had grown up with. And so God just used that to just shine a light on my heart and just say, yeah, he's naming my sin. And uh, so, yeah, it was very, it was, it was me and my own. You know, it was a very convicting series for me. I'd agree with Greg of learning to see uh, different things differently, but also at the same time, I've been part of the lift, um, dealing with uh, kids from the inner city, but then also being from middle class and Woodbury. Uh, so hearing the inner city kids make judgments about white suburban people and uh, my neighbors making the same assessment about inner city people, being in the middle of that and trying to defend each class uh, helped me see uh, differently about how they're mis 
judging each other and not being able to love each other because there were all these judgments in, um, in the way. And, uh, and it was all just because of ignorance. And uh, they couldn't see each other, therefore they couldn't love each other. Well, hey, my name's Seth. Um, thanks for sticking around, you know. Um, some of you just got that, right? Okay, just real curious. When you guys were talking to each other and you asked uh, how, people, how did people first find out about Woodland Hills, will you do me a favor? The person that you talked to, if they said that they were invited by someone, will you just hold your hand up? I just want to see how many hands are out there. Yeah. Great. It's a good lesson. Like, inviting people to church is a good thing to do still, right? Now, um, you know, in the world we live in, we recognize that, that uh, certain countries are really good at certain things. Sometimes it's real clear like, what country is the best at something? Like, for instance, um, we all know that, like, that the, the country that makes the best cars is Germany, right? Hands down, right? Country that makes the best cars, Germany, right? The country that has the best food, the country that has the best food, right? Everyone knows it's Mexico. Mexico has the best food, right? If you disagree with that, then you're just wrong. I'm sorry about that. If you thought France, France has the best bakery, so you're like, you, you're like a runner-up. You came in second place, right? Um, now, uh, the country that makes the best flat-packed, modern, very frustrating-to-put-together furniture in the world, the country that does the best job at this is Sweden, Sweden right? Yeah. Um, most of you probably know the frustration of trying to put together a new dresser. And because in step seven, you put a screw in the wrong place, then in step 18, you have a dresser that's drawers are upside down, right? And then you have to take the whole thing apart. So annoying, right? One thing that Sweden is not great at is writing instructions. We've learned that, right? Now, uh, last week, Greg kicked off this series that we're in called Through Line. Uh, through line is a dramatic uh, word. Um, it's a word that describes like a central theme through a series of stories. So, you know, like if it was Star Wars, you can trace a through line of a main character like Darth Vader. You kind of find out what's motivating him in the different episodes. It's something, it's a theme that carries through. We just want to be real upfront with you. The through line of Woodland Hills um, is God's love. We just think that it's never not appropriate. It's always the appropriate response in any and every situation, right? Now, the thing about that is like if I surveyed a million churches in America and said, how important is God's love on your radar? Uh, how many of them would say highly important? Like all a million of them would, right? No one disagrees with that. And yet we as Christians are challenged in the sense that what, what does it mean to respond in God's love in the world that we live in? Um, when you're at your office, uh, when you're in a tricky conversation with your spouse, right? Like, love has to get fleshed out. Uh, we need some instructions about what that means. And so for the next four weeks, as we continue on in the series, hopefully what we're going to do for you is get real concrete about what kind of muscles can you develop when you really want to grow in love. And so today I want to talk to you about one of the strongest muscles of love. It's called hospitality. 
Now, uh, you have a bulletin. That bulletin has a significant amount of space for notes. Note-taking in church is a great idea. Um, also, if you're bored, it also gives you an opportunity to doodle. And actually, doodling is a helpful thing for focusing. If you didn't bring a writing utensil, we've provided one because we're good at hospitality. You have pencils on the end of your rows if you want to grab one of those. I want to give you a real simple definition for Christian hospitality. Um, before I do that, did you know that you can go to school for hospitality? Do you know that you could get a master's degree in hospitality? I looked it up online. Uh, there's like the top 10 best universities for hospitality. Cornell University, if you want to go get the best degree in hospitality. I'm hoping that like the best church degree in hospitality is going to be right here at 1740 Van Dyke today. We're going we're gonna to go to hospitality school, okay? Okay, definition of hospitality, real simple. Hospitality is making space for someone, making space for someone that you don't have to. Hospitality is making space for someone when you don't have to. And the truth is, you know that for the most part, you don't have to. Um, where do we get this idea of hospitality in Scripture? Do you know it starts at the very beginning? Um, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis starts out talking about God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. Um, this group, uh, the, the, the Trinity decides that the Trinity is going to create something new. It's going to make space for another being called humans when it totally doesn't have to. You know, God didn't create you because he was lonely. God was fully complete before you or I arrived. But because God is hospitable, God said, I've got more room. There's more room here. I'm going to create space, and I'm going to invite human beings into it. And so God creates a place for life called planet Earth. And even on this Earth, he creates a beautiful garden. It's a little lesson in hospitality. In the garden was every single thing that humans needed for a full and complete life. Everything was there. God starts with hospitality, and then Jesus points towards the end of the story and talks about hospitality. Now, I grew up going to youth group in like the late 80s, um, and in the late 80s, a terrible thing happened. Christians discovered that we could make music that sounded like radio music. We just couldn't do it quite as good, but we still put it on CDs and sold it anyway. So there was like a, a booming Christian music industry. One of the bands was really popular. They had this song that was real, had like a catchy hook. Um, it was so catchy that my youth pastor thought that we could make it a worship song. So we started singing this worship song. And the lyrics of it were uh, good and terrible at the same time. There was one line that was talking about the kind of place that the father has. And it said that, that God had a big, big yard. <laughs> You've heard this song. Apparently God has a big yard so that we can do what? Play football, right? That wasn't the best part of the song. The best part of the song is uh, it said that the father has a big, big house with what? Lots and lots of rooms. You know, that comes straight from the teaching of Jesus. He looked at his disciples and he said, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place. And in my father's house, in my father's house, there's lots of room. Um, you know, lots of churches miss this fact about God. That in God's world, there's lots and lots of room. There's room for you. There's room for other people that you hope there's room for, but there's also room for people that you hope that there's not room for. This is one of the hardest things about being part of the church. There's like a little joke that people tell about heaven. You know, in tradition, St. Peter's like the guard of heaven. Did you know that? He's like got a list and he's the one who decides who to let in and who not to let in. 
And then the tradition also holds that because Paul was kind of a bossy guy, then he kind of runs things on the inside. So Peter's the gatekeeper or the bouncer, and Paul is like the general manager, like the floor manager. One time, Paul came to Peter and said, Peter, we have a problem. There's too many, there's more people in here than is supposed to be on the list. Like our count is off. Something's wrong. And so Peter's like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. And Paul's like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So they decided they were going to figure it out. So they, they slept on it. Um, except Paul didn't sleep because he really wanted to figure out the problem. Then in the morning, he goes to St. Peter and he says, Peter, I figured out the problem. He said, what is it? He goes, at night while we're both sleeping, Jesus is on the other side of the wall. He keeps throwing people inside. <laughs> yeah. Right? And uh, that's the kind of God we serve. There's churches that are totally gatekeeping churches to say, like, who, who are we going to let in? Uh, and then there's churches that are like running things on the inside. And one of the commitments that Woodland Hills has had since its very beginning, one of the reasons why I um, am committed to the vision and mission here is because we serve a God who works outside the fence and is like just throwing people in. And he asks his people to like welcome and make room for them. Now, in a sad turn of events, like, God makes space for human beings in the garden in the beginning. And then in the future, God says, I have this giant mansion with so many rooms. Like, I have, I have more room for people. And then there's a point in the middle of the story where God decides that he's going to show up in our world. He's going to see how hospitable we as humans are, right? Um, and so we, we meet a, a very pregnant Mary. And uh, I don't know about you, when I get around very pregnant women, I give them whatever they want. But the city of Bethlehem did not learn this lesson. So Mary shows up real pregnant, ready to give birth with Joseph, because God, God is about to come into our world in a real concrete and special way. And, you know, it's a time of year that we really celebrate. We sing great songs, and Santa comes, and we have presents. But it's one of the saddest stories in the scripture. Because God shows up in our world, and you know what we do? We don't have lots and lots of rooms. We, we don't even have one. We didn't even have one. I just want to pause for a minute and ask you a question. Um, it's, not just the, it's not just that town that didn't have room for Jesus. I find in our town there's less and less room for Jesus. I find in my own life, in, in my own days, like your yesterday, how much room yesterday did you make for Jesus? How hospitable were you to God's presence? Because I just want to pause and say there's no point in talking about welcoming strangers and reaching beyond ourselves in comfort if the first thing that we don't get right, the very first thing that we have to do is we have to be hospitable to God. To say, God, you got to fill me because if you don't, I can't do it, right? I can't do it. Amen. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews gives the church some real specific directions about hospitality. Thought it was important enough to give them real clear direction. He just said, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Because by doing some, have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So the writer of Hebrews references this really weird story in the Old Testament where a couple guests show up into town. They get welcomed into a, into a home. Um, turns out that they're angels. Uh, turns out that it was a good idea to host them because these angels help get this whole family out of town before the thing gets destroyed. And one of the things that happens in these scripture verses is that we're reminded consistently in scripture, we're always surprised about uh, or by who, um, which people are on God's side. 
See, one of the main enemies of hospitality, do you know what it is? Um, It's not rudeness. The main enemy of hospitality is superiority. You should write that down. The main enemy of hospitality is superiority. There's nothing that makes someone less hospitable than when you think you're better than somebody, right? Who makes room for someone when you're better than them? Jesus was like a laser going after the spirit of superiority. He did it everywhere. And in fact, he almost always employed a certain set of stories. He would choose to tell a story where the character who's the hero comes from a category of people that aren't supposed to be the hero. It's like the wrong person is the hero. The person who's supposed to be the hero is the villain. Jesus told these stories and turned them upside down all the time. One of his favorite groups of people to do it with, we're real familiar with. He tells a story about a guy who is on the road. He gets attacked by some thieves, is on the side of the road, beat up, right? We know this story, the story of the good Maritan, right? So the senior pastor walks by the guy on the side of the road and doesn't do anything, right? Um, are you guys all looking at Greg right now? Yeah. It gets worse. Then one of the teaching pastors walks by and doesn't do anything, right? Um, And then the person who's from the wrong side of town, who doesn't have much to offer, ends up offering the thing that's the most needed. What an amazing story. This is the thing about the Bible. The the Bible is both super simple. Like, if you're here and you didn't grow up in in a church home, maybe this is the first sermon you've ever heard. I want you to know that even though the Bible's, like, really thick and has all kinds of words that are hard to pronounce, like, it took me a long time to figure out that the last book of the Old Testament, I thought it was pronounced Malachi. But it's not, right? All right, come on. How are you going to know that? So there's all kinds of words in there that you can't pronounce. If you're new to the Bible, I just want you to know that Jesus made it real simple. He took a whole book and he just said, look, two things, man. Apparently he couldn't reduce it to one. So like even simplicity has its limits. Two things. Just love God with everything you got. How's everybody doing at that? Are we all done with that? We've finished and completed that, haven't we? No. So like, love God with everything you have, and then every person you see, love them with as much love as you love yourself. Man, Jesus, take it easy on us, will you? It's real simple. On the other hand, it's not simple at all. People go get PhD degrees, like our own senior pastor, and can devote their whole life to studying the complexities. It's an amazing, miraculous, inspiring piece of literature. It's incredible. Writers over centuries, so many connections. Like, it's as simple as just loving people, and it's as complex as it is because it's the book of God, and God is both really simple and also can never be searched out at the end. Now, so Jesus told a story about Samaritans, and in fact, there's an episode that he has with a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan woman. Um, It's a Samaritan woman that he meets at a well. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, Uh, Because in in our culture, uh, one, we don't have all that many wells. uh, And like we don't go to a well at a certain time of day to draw water. But to a Jewish person hearing this story, it would sound very familiar. Because when Jewish people told stories about a man and a woman meeting at a well, this was a romance story. This is how Isaac found his wife. Although he didn't find it, he... uh, he wasn't quite as courageous. Uh, it's sort of like stories like this. Like, do you remember the eighth grade dance? Do you remember that? 
where all the guys stood on one side and didn't dance and all the girls stood on the other side and didn't dance and then finally someone gets up enough courage to go over to the other side and ask someone to dance and you find your first love there, right? Or if you're like me, you're not courageous enough so you send your friend over to ask the girl if she would dance with you. Like the, that sort of boy meets girl story, this is the Good Samaritan story, except it's just wrong because um, it's in the wrong town. Good Jewish people didn't go to that town. And it's with the wrong woman. If it's a boy meet girl story, um, that's not the right girl. Been married five times and now is with a man who she's not married to. That's not quite an incredible catch, right? And then it's the wrong guy. Um, Jesus isn't going to marry this woman. and He's not going to do it this well. This, everything about this story is wrong except everything about the story is exactly right because even though it's the wrong guy, it's absolutely the right guy. And even though it's the wrong place, it's totally the right place. The interaction Jesus has, he gets like this word of knowledge. It's like, you know, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And then he looks in the eye and he says like, you came here to draw water at a time of day that culturally tells us a little more about you than we, than we need to know. But I want you to know that you met me here and I have, I have a drink of water for you that will mean that you won't be thirsty again because this is a water that satisfies what you're really hungry for. Another husband's not going to make it. Just a side note. Um, the, in, in Jewish uh, culture, women didn't have the power. They, they weren't given the authority to get divorced. So the fact that she'd been divorced five times doesn't tell us something about her character. Uh, it does tell us something about five guys in that story. And that one's got misinterpreted quite a bit. Um, like, Jesus meets her and says, like, I'm, I'm going to meet the need that you have the most. I just want you to know that hospitality isn't passive. It doesn't mean having people over for dinner. It can mean that. It doesn't only mean that. Jesus came into our world Jesus goes to the wrong places and offers the hospitality of God in the wrong situations and at the wrong times, except they're exactly right. Because, um, because God's house is bigger than we would want it to be. And Jesus is oftentimes on the outside of the fence throwing people in that we wouldn't want. Now, I've kind of shared a couple times if you've been around here a little bit. Um, I grew up in a, in a fairly conservative Christian home. A lot of it I'm super grateful for. One of the things that was clear to me in, in, in my growing up years with the Christians that I rubbed shoulders with, we had a pretty clear idea of who was going to heaven, who there was room for in the house, and who there wasn't room for in the house. And I'm super thankful that one of the things that God's taught me over this last time is that I was, I was wrong about who was on the outside and who was on the inside. But can I tell you something that happens to us oftentimes? It, it has to do with something called a pendulum. Have you heard of this idea, Right? We go from one side of the fence to the other. I met lots of people who grew up conservative and who have sort of had a, a, a revelation about the kinds of people that God loves. But then the thing about superiority is it's like, it's one of Satan's best tactics. He's really good at it, and it turns out so are we. That as soon as you tear down one superiority and find yourself on the other side of the camp, you now find a new superiority, and you're now better than the other people are. And like the truth of the matter is we're super good at this. And one illustration of this is, um, is flying on a plane. 
It's only happened to me a couple times that I've gotten lucky enough to be with someone who got upgraded to first class. Have you ever been upgraded to first class on a plane? Now, when I think about the way to load a plane, because I think about these things, like everywhere I go when I'm watching things happen, I'm almost always thinking to myself, if I was in charge, I would do it different and it would be better. This is how sick I am. So I'm watching them load the plane. I'm thinking, this is kind of silly. Like, if it was me, I would load the back first. It's like a U-Haul. Who loads the front of a U-Haul first? That's silly. You load the back to the front, you close the door, and then off we go. But the airlines are so much smarter than I am because the point of first class, the main reason why, if, if I could afford to, I would pay more to sit in first class, isn't the extra leg room or the champagne. That's not the best part about first class. You and I, we both know the best part about first class, don't we? It's the first 10 minutes. It's the 10 minutes when you get to sit there in first class and you get to watch all the other lowlifes head to the back. You know that's why people pay more for first class. Because um, on a plane, it's really important to know who gets the best seat, you know, who gets the best seat. Disciples argued about this. Christians have struggled with this. Just curious, how many of you, this is the first time that you've been in this room with the rearranged seating? Hold your hand up. And I can see you now because we're close, so, all right. I moved your chair. I'm sorry about that. I moved your chair. Um, man, I've been, to, I've been to churches where the, it was clear who got the best seats, and it was clear who didn't get the best seats. And in Jesus' church, I think it's a good question for us to ask, who should get the best seat here, you know? Who should get the best seat? There's a Pew Research study that came out not too long ago about the, the state that the church is in with younger people. And uh, it was pretty hard to hear. More young people are leaving and walking away from the church and faith record numbers like we haven't seen for a while. And rightly so, it's causing some stirring in the church. Churches are asking themselves, how do we keep people, right? Right? I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in California, but I heard there's a saying on a farm. There's like two ways to keep cattle. One of them is you can build fences. That's a good way to keep cattle. That makes a lot of sense to me. Build a fence. And I know lots of churches that are trying to build fences around their young people. Here's a fence. But then there's another way to keep cattle, and that's to dig a well because they need water. Um, you know, one of my hopes around Woodland Hills is we look at this challenge of keeping young people of being a hospitable kind of church is that we don't build fences, but we just dig wells. Because I think it doesn't matter what generation you're a part of. I don't think it matters what generation you're a part of. I think when people meet the living God face to face, I think that's a deep well for people. And I think that we can do that. Okay, uh, last thing before I wrap up. Uh, in James... James writes to the church and he gives some instructions about who gets the best seat. And in scripture, there's this thing called hyperbole, which is like exaggerating something to make a point. And so I think this point will land home with us pretty well. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. You know that our, our faith originates in Christ and you know it's glorious, right? And you know that public opinion isn't anywhere near as good as it. So let's not let public opinion sway who gets the best seat and who doesn't get the best seat. Who gets to speak into things and who doesn't. 
If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir. This is the best seat in the house. And you either ignore the street person or you say, better sit in the back row. Haven't you just segregated God's children and proved that you're judges and you can't be trusted? I don't know about you. I want to be trusted. I want to be trustworthy. So, like, the big question, right? One of the questions that I'm asking in my work here and in my life in general, like, I, I love the church. I've devoted most of my life to working at the church. I love it, and I think I love it because Jesus loves it. It's his bride. Do we have our spots and wrinkles? We certainly do. And some of those wrinkles are real deep, and the church has caused a lot of pain. And yet, at the end of the day, Jesus loves it, and so I do too, and I give myself to it. At the end of the day, I wonder, like, what, what is it that makes a church great? What makes a great church? What kind of muscles does a great church have? And I just want to say, I think one of the muscles that a great church has is that no matter who walks in the door, um, no matter whether you feel superior to them or not, whether it's a person that you would want to welcome or whether it's a person that you wouldn't want to welcome. Think about that for a second. Do you ever think to yourself, boy, I hope these people don't come to our church because they would ruin it, right? We can fill in the blanks with that one. I hope these people don't come to the church because they would ruin it. And I'd say that a great church never says that. A great church says to everyone that walks in, we say it, And maybe at the beginning we have to say it and not mean it. And then eventually we can say it enough that God changes our heart. I would love that we said to every person who walks into our door, I'm I'm really glad you're here. And and that we would mean that. No matter where they come from. No matter where they come from. No matter what we agree with or disagree with. That a radical kind of Christian hospitality would be what this church is known for. That one of the ways of expressing um, a a, a Jesus-looking God, one of the ways of being a Jesus-looking church, which just is made up of Jesus-looking people, is that we would look at everybody and we would welcome them the way that Jesus would. With no superiority, no us versus them, only a spirit that said, man, there's a well here at this church. And I, it's not my well, it's God's well. I'm not the defender at the gate. And if Jesus threw you over the fence in here, then you're welcome to drink just like I am. And let's drink together from that one. Would you stand as I close in prayer? I'm going to ask the prayer teams. uh, They're going to be up here on the wings, kind of underneath the screens. Uh, If you got something that you need prayer for, if you know someone else who's in a spot where they really need God's help, you can stand in the gap and pray for them. They would love to pray over those needs. I want you to know that the person who's, um, who's uh, displayed hospitality the greatest is Jesus. And it wasn't just to those people back there. Jesus just, he invites everyone to come. And that's not just in masses, that's like to individual people. I want you to know if you think that there's something blocking you from coming to Jesus, that Jesus wouldn't be hospitable to you, I want you to know that's not true. There's nothing that Jesus would want more than to like welcome you into his home, into his family.
And if, you're, if you have questions about that, or if you're feeling prompted that you're ready to do that, these folks would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. It says that there's a celebration in heaven every time that happens to one person. That's what scripture says. Okay, Lord, when we say that word, what we mean is master and leader and king. You're the one that's in charge. This is your place. Um, we're, we're trying to follow you. We look at your example of the way that you welcomed people. And it's not, any, it's not going to be any less shocking to us than it was the people that you interacted with in the Gospel of John. You're going to surprise us with who gets the radical welcome. I pray you'd remind us that your kind of hospitality, doesn't, you didn't sit around and wait for us to come to you. You came to us. And I pray that in our lives and in this church, that this, the spirit of welcoming people and saying, like, we're, we are sincerely glad that you're here. This is your place too. Pray that that would permeate our hearts. I pray that we would be hospitable to you in our own individual lives, that we would make space for you. And I pray that you would use us in, in your kingdom army. And that one of, the, one of the things that we would carry it onto our world is this radical word that we have, that there's, there's nothing between you and the people that we rub shoulders with, that their sins are not held against them. God, use us to do that. Break down our superiority where we have it. Remind us that we are agents of love and restoration in our world. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.